0: Well, take your Bibles and turn once again to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, we'll be looking once again for our third week in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And we'll be concluding this little series on the four names of Jesus, the four gifts of Christmas uh, next week as we look at the Prince of Peace. But this morning, we look from Isaiah 9, 6 at our everlasting Father, a gift that has been given to us in Isaiah chapter 9. The day after I graduated from high school, I got in my father's Ford Explorer and drove with one other friend to Wyoming. Uh, We didn't have a clear, super clear plan of exactly where we were stopping on the way and exactly how we were going to get there. But we did know where we were going to go when we got there. And that's because we had a friend of a friend who was a cattle rancher there and had allowed us to come and to stay. We went to visit them, and I remember driving into the town, and there was a sign that said, Population 9. There were two families that owned all of the land in this town, a family of four and a family of five. Both of them had been cattle ranchers for generations and generations, and their family owned this little place that we got to stay. Now, there was a lot of things I remember about that trip, but I tell you, the thing I remember the most was the sky, sky. I'd never seen anything like this before. And I, I, I've been to a lot of places. I, I've been to Two in Mali, West Africa, a real place I've been there. But I have never been to the middle of nowhere, which is exactly what it felt like when I was there in this cattle ranch in Wyoming and looking up to the sky, being absolutely overwhelmed by what I was seeing. Now, I I assume up to that point, 18 years of living, i had looked at the sky a lot of times, and I also assumed that all those things that had always been there, I'd just never seen them. And I thought that, man, all of this is here, and you just see as far as you can see, just thousands and thousands of stars and galaxies, and then trying to comprehend that there's more beyond that, and trying to think about the light years that all of those things are away, and just absolutely overwhelming. And I remember thinking in that moment just about the magnificence of God. That God put every one of those into place and knows them by name and holds them into place. He's not just the creator. He is the sustainer of all of the universe. That all of those things are still there and existing because he holds them together. And then the fact that just the power of his word, he put them all there. He spoke and all of those galaxies came into existence. And the fact that he holds all of it in the palm of his hand... Like that's nothing to him. The vastness of all of that, which is overwhelming to us, is nothing to him. He holds all of that in his hand and controls all of those things. The overwhelming thought of the magnificence of God. But then what's even more overwhelming than that is to think that somehow and some way I'm significant to the magnificent God. That the same God who spoke all of those things into existence and hold all of them together by the power of his word, that holds all of those things in his hand, is the same God that knows my name, knows every intimate detail of my life, cares about every detail of my life, and loves me fully and perfectly and completely. The God who created all those things knows that I'm standing right there at that moment, knows what I'm thinking, and cares What an overwhelming thought that we are significant to the magnificent. Now what I hope happens as we are walking through these names of Jesus is that we might do really what we do every year. That we might peer into the manger. That we might in our mind's eye go to Bethlehem and that we might see this manger and a baby that is lying there. But somehow... We might see something there that we have never seen before. We've seen the baby time and time again. We've thought about this time and time again. But somehow, in the same way I looked at the sky and saw for the first time what had always been there, that somehow we might see in the manger what has always been there, but that we have never fully understood. That somehow, by peering into the manger, we might see that which is really the true purpose of Christmas. We might know that we are significant to the magnificent. Because Colossians 1 tells us that baby that is in that manger is the one who is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. He's the one that put all those stars into place. And by the fact that he has humbled himself and descended to come live among us is the greatest of all evidences that you are significant to the magnificent God. Now, if you're there in Isaiah chapter 9, say amen. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. It says, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Neptali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light, pointing us to Christ. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone you have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy, and they rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And here's our focus For to us, a child is born. For to us, a son is given and the government shall rest upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, it's there in verse 6 that we have these four different names of Jesus, all of them a gift that are given to us. God has given us the gift of a son, Jesus Christ, And he is all of these things. He is a wonderful counselor, as we talked about two weeks ago, which is really good news because all of us are dysfunctional and all of us need wise counsel. He is a mighty God, which is good news for us because all of us need defending. We all need someone to fight battles for us. We all have things in our life that we cannot get victory over. And so God sent us a mighty God. This morning, we look at the fact that God has also sent us an Everlasting Father. These are gifts given to us. So he says, I'm I'm giving you my son, Jesus Christ. He is in himself a really good counselor. He is a mighty God and he is an everlasting father. Now, the reason this one becomes a little bit confusing for us is because we don't think about Jesus as a father. We think about Jesus as as a son. We believe in the Trinity. God in three persons as holy, holy Holy, the song says, blessed Trinity, that we believe in one God who is one of essence in three distinct persons, three distinct persons, God, the father, God, the son and God, the Holy Spirit. And we know that Jesus is God, the son, one in essence, eternally existing in perfect communion in relationship with one another. So there was not a time in which Jesus did not exist. Jesus, the son, always existed. God, the father, always existed. The Holy Spirit always existed. And they are one in essence, but they are distinct in persons. Now, there's a lot of ways we can get confused in this. One of the ways that is often most confused is what's called modalism. You can impress family members at Christmas by writing that word down. Just kind of throw it in casually, you know, like, I was listening to a preacher on the radio and he was talking about the Trinity and I'm telling you, I think he was a modalist to just kind of say that and chuckle and a modalist is someone who believes that there is one God who just kind of manifests himself in different ways at different times. So in the Old Testament, he's God, the father in the New Testament, he's God, the son, and now he's he's God, the spirit, but that's that's not right. Three distinct persons of one essence. And so when we always know that Jesus is God the Son, it doesn't make sense for us to think that God has given us an everlasting Father who is Jesus Christ. Listen, when Isaiah wrote this, he he wasn't thinking about the Trinity. He wasn't trying to give us clear language on the Trinity. He was using this idea of everlasting Father to reveal to us both the work and the character of Jesus Christ. That Isaiah writing under the influence and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, giving us the word from God saying that the work that Jesus will do will be like the work of an everlasting father. And the character that he will display to us will be the kind of love and nurture that we would receive from a perfect everlasting father. I think the best way to understand it is in two specific ways. That Jesus as the everlasting father is the founder of our faith and the way into the family. I'd encourage you to write that down. Jesus, as the everlasting father, we could say a lot. These are the two clearest things that that, uh, Isaiah is saying. He is the founder of the faith and the way into the family. Let's think about that a little bit. Jesus, as everlasting father, is the founder of our faith. Now, oftentimes in the Old Testament... You have the word father used to refer to someone who was the founder of something. And that shouldn't surprise us because we do the same thing. We talk about the fact that America has founding fathers. These are men who founded our nation and refer to them as the founding fathers. You would say that James Madison is the father of the U.S. Constitution. You would say that Henry Ford is the father of the auto industry. You would say Alexander Graham Bell is the father of the telephone. If that isn't clear enough, you would say that Truett Cathy is the father of the chicken sandwich. Is it making sense? You know what they say? They didn't, they didn't create the chicken, just the chicken sandwich. So God would be the father of the chicken. He's the founder of that. Truett Cathy just is the father of the chicken sandwich. We, we're on the same page, right? This idea of, of a father being a founder or the creator of something is really one of the things that Isaiah is trying to say to us here. And the New Testament says this. Hebrews 12.2 says that Jesus, listen, is the author, or some versions say, the founder and perfecter of our faith. He's the one that started it. He's the one that perfected it. He's the one that'll finish it. He is the founder, the author, and perfecter of our faith. Jesus is the founding father of the faith. Now, I'm going to give you another theological term that also can be used to impress people at Christmas. That is going to sound a little bit heady and maybe a little bit boring, but I promise you that as we unfold it just a little bit, you will realize the magnificence of it and come to understand what it means for Jesus to be the founder of our faith. The phrase is federal headship, federal headship. It's a term that's often used to mean that there is one person here who represents the rest, that all of us are kind of understood and find our being in this other person, federal headship. Now, this begins with Adam, and it's most clearly seen in in Romans chapter 5. It explains all of this. So, Adam is the father of humanity. That would be honest to say, that, that he is the first human. He was created by God, did not have an earthly father. He was born into a world without sin, and he was not sinful in his birth, but he was tempted to sin and he fell into sin. And as the old phrase goes, as the father goes, so goes the family is true of us and Adam. All of us are connected to Adam. He's the father of humanity. And I, I think at least the vast majority of us are human. And so as humans, we are connected to Adam, who is the father of humanity. And as the father goes, so goes us. You know that when Adam sinned, he brought sin into the world and brought a sinful nature into humanity. And with that sinful nature also brought the condemnation and the wrath of God. He brought guilt and shame and all of the consequences of sin. And because of that, we are born now as human beings enslaved to sin. If you've ever wondered why it's so difficult to fight sin... You've had these things in your life that for years you've been trying to conquer and you can't seem to get a hold of them. And you've tried and tried and tried and it always seems that sin is winning over you. And if you've ever wondered why you can't beat death, that death is always going to win eventually in your life, it's because you're human. And you're not a sinner because you were born and you sinned. You sinned because at your birth you were a sinner to your very core. That when Adam sinned, he brought a sinful nature into humanity. And as our federal head, all of us received a sinful nature from Adam. And all of us are under the curse of sin and shame and death. And all of us are under the wrath of God. And this is what it says in Romans chapter 5. Listen to Romans 5 verse 12. It says this. Therefore... Just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam sinned, bringing death and condemnation. Therefore, that sin spread to all men. All of us are sinful beings under the wrath of God, under the sin and the consequences of sin and death and hell because of our federal head, the father of humanity, Adam. Now, it tells us in Romans 5.14 that Adam is actually a type. What does that mean? Well, it means that he's a picture of something else. He's a pattern. He's a foreshadowing of another Adam who's going to come. Have you ever heard of Jesus referred to as the second Adam? We often say that Jesus is the second Adam. What does that mean? Well, Jesus and Adam had a lot of similarities. Both were born without an earthly father. Both were born without sin. And both were tempted to sin. But there is a major difference. That even though both of them were tempted to sin, when Adam fell into sin and rebelled against God and broke his relationship with God, Jesus Christ, born into a sinful world, tempted in every manner that we were and in the same manner that Adam was, did not sin. He lived a perfect and sinless life. But he had another, a bit strange similarity to Adam in that, In the same way, Adam died as the consequence of his sin, so it is that Jesus died, but Jesus did not sin. So why did Jesus die if the only reason we have death is because of the consequence of sin? And the answer is this. Jesus did not die because he had to. Jesus died because he willingly laid down his life. Because Jesus did not die for his own sin. Jesus died for our sin. So what happens is that when Jesus goes to the cross... All of our sin is placed upon Jesus and the perfect life of Jesus, which was demanded by God for us to live in order to have a relationship with him, is now credited to our account. So yes, like Adam, Jesus did die, but he died for our sin and he rose from the dead in order that he might once and for all gain victory over the very things that we could never gain victory of over in our flesh which is sin and death. We cannot conquer sin and death, but Jesus Christ did. And so listen to this incredible news, in Romans 5:18 and 19. It says therefore as one trespass Adams led to condemnation for all men. So, listen to this. One act of righteousness, Jesus, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam, The many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. So, all of us are born into Adam, sinful at our very core, receiving the consequences of our sin. But listen, because of Christ, it is possible for us to be born again and receive the very nature of Christ. Why? Because of federal headship, that we are united with Adam in our humanity. Because we're born human, but it is possible if you by faith will be born again, can be united in Jesus Christ and receive life and righteousness through him. Jesus is, is the founder, he is the, the head, he is the father of this faith. God, knowing that death and sin and hell was reigning over us, gave us an everlasting father who would be the father of this new faith in which we could be joined into. And now, instead of being cursed because we're connected with Adam, can receive the blessing and life and honor of being connected to Jesus Christ. And in that way, Jesus is the father and the founder and the author of this faith. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That yes, you are born into Adam and deserve to go to hell, but you can be born again into Christ and go to heaven. You were born into Adam and therefore cannot conquer sin or death, but you can be born again into Jesus Christ and conquer both sin and death. That's the wonderful news of the gospel and deserves at least one applause. So this incredible truth that Jesus, as an everlasting father, is the founder of the faith. But, but let me give you one more. I said that, that as an everlasting father, he's the founder of the faith, but he's also the way into the family. He's the way into the family. Now, if you're just reading Isaiah 9 and you're thinking to yourself, okay, what is the feel here? And kind of what is the language communicating Everything in Isaiah 9 kind of communicates government language or military language or kingdom language. I mean, just look at the verse after Isaiah 9, 6. It says this, of the increase of his government, Jesus, and of peace, there will be no end. So Jesus will come and establish an eternal kingdom. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, he will establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Jesus will come and establish an eternal kingdom and he will rule and reign for all of eternity. And it is the zeal of the Lord of hosts that will do this. And so because of that, it seems odd that you have this family word, which is really one of the only family words here that there's this son and father relationship he is an everlasting father you see it's strange to us because in a kingdom the people in the kingdom are not children of the king and they don't refer to the king as a father You see, in a kingdom, there is a king, and he may have a son, and that son is the heir of everything the king has. He will get all the inheritance when the king dies. He will rule and reign when the king dies, but not everyone else. You see, here's the beauty of this is that Jesus is communicating that his kingdom is unlike any other kingdom that has ever existed. Because in his kingdom, he is creating a family in which all of the people in the kingdom are not subjects or slaves or servants. They are children. And as children, they become heirs of every single thing that belongs to the king. Jesus Christ... Is a king, he came and he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel and there will be a day when he will rule and reign over all things. And he is gathering together people in his kingdom and by faith we enter in. But what he says is this, once you enter into my kingdom, you become a child and as a child, an heir of everything that I have. So everything that is mine now belongs to you. Why? Because Jesus did not simply come together an army. He came together a family. This is why it tells us in Hebrews 2.10 that Jesus came to bring many sons to glory. I quoted this verse at the beginning of our service, but I, I love how 1 John is Just consistently chapter after chapter talking about the love of God and the way in that manifest in our love for each other. And it's almost like John, who is writing this under the inspiration of the Spirit, starts to think about this for two chapters and then exclaims in 1 John 3, 1, Behold, what manner of love has been given unto us that we should be called children of God? Like what kind of love not only comes and lays down its life that we might be saved, but then makes us children and calls us children? What kind of love would do that? That would rescue us in our sinful state, that would redeem us from the wrath of God, that would reconcile us in a right relationship with God, and then say, I'm going to make you my children. It's God's love. That's what kind of love. I love the way it says it in Ephesians 1.5, and I love it because it throws out a little word that makes us all a little worried, but when you understand it, it's incredible. Ephesians 1.5 says this, he has predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. I've told you this before, but the word predestined simply man, means that God has a predetermined plan. He goes on in Ephesians 1.11, says, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. You know that God has a plan, right? And here's what it says. It says part of God's plan from the very beginning was to take every single person who has come to him by faith and to make them children. To adopt us into the family. We have to be adopted into the family because we're not born into the family. We're born into Adam. But we can be born again into Jesus Christ and therefore we get adopted and brought in to this forever family where God is our father. And Jesus is the way into that family. Jesus is the one who is creating that family. And it is only because of Jesus that we can come into that family. We've been adopted as as sons. And Jesus is the way into that family. God wanted us to be children and heirs of everything that he has. There's nothing that God is withholding from you as an heir it's incredible that it says that he is an an everlasting father, which means he's the same yesterday, today and forever that we don't have to wonder if there will be a time in which he will change his mind about this faith or change his mind about this family that, I mean, this is not, not me, but a lot of fathers, you know, are moody one day and not the next day. And you just kind of never know where you stand with a, with a father. And, and none of us have had perfect fathers and, Fathers can be complicated figures, and all of us have dysfunction as fathers, but we have this everlasting father who's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and it's not just the same, he's perfectly the same perfectly good and perfectly righteousness, which communicates to us that there is a certainty that we have. There is a stability. There is a steadiness that if I unite myself with Jesus Christ and I am born again into his family, this is a family that Jesus is holding to. His un- affection for us, his love for us, his nurture, his care is unchanging. The adoption is unchanging. He comes and he brings us in and he has never lost one child. And it was all by name. And he brings them in and he protects them and make sure they make it until the end. I love the progression of of Isaiah 9-6. Just as I meditate on it, where it begins with this wonderful counselor, which resonates so much with us because we just have so many issues and we need someone wise. And what Jesus says is, as you walk with me day by day, you'll become wise. That Jesus is the wisdom of God. And then he says, listen, I know there's all these things going against you and I wanna defend you and protect you. So I am a mighty God, I am defending you. And then he gives us this everlasting father to show us that he loves us and he wants to nurture us and care for us and protect us and welcome us. And the reason that's so significant is because a counselor can be and probably should be a bit distant. And a mighty God who's defending us is probably a little distant but this is an everlasting father communicating to us a type of affection and relational intimacy that God wants to have with us. In other words, what Jesus says to us is he paints this picture of a perfect, wonderful counselor and a mighty God who is magnificent. And then when he says he is an everlasting father, he says this. And you are significant to the magnificent. Because you're my child. And I love you and I want you and I want you near to me. We have this incredible view of God and his greatness in the first two, but in that third, he simply wants us to understand that you matter to him, that he loves you and he wants you near. And you know, it didn't have to be that way. I mean, even if if Jesus would have come and said, I'm coming to establish a kingdom, I'm saving you from sin and death and hell, but I'm gonna make you my servants and my slaves for all of eternity, I'd take it, right? I'd take it. Like, better to be that with Jesus than spend eternity in hell. Like, that would have been amazing grace. Had Jesus would said, I'm going to keep you at a little bit of a distance, and, and, and but I want you to know I'm still going to save you. Great, I'm in. But he didn't do that. He said, I'm going to come, and I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to save you, and I'm going to bring you into the family where for all of eternity I'm going to love you and nurture you and care for you and welcome you and help you to understand that I am a perfectly good Father and have everything that you need. It's a gift given to you. Remember what John 1, 12 says. It says, to as many who have received him, to him he gave the right to become children of God. We're not all born children of God. We're born children of Adam. We only become children of God when we're born again. We're not all children of God. We become his children when we come to him by faith. Listen to what it says to as many as received him. In other words, you, you have to receive this gift by being born again. Last week we sang A Little Town of Bethlehem, and I love these, I love these Christmas hymns. And I, I'm always amazed how they're so theologically rich. And I, I noticed this last week when we sang it says this O little child of Bethlehem. Descend on us, we pray, cast out our sins and enter in, be born in us today. See, that's the prayer that every single one of us has to pray. At some point, we have to pray a prayer in which we say, God, we, we want to be born again. We want to be united with Christ, We know what it's like to be born into Adam. We want to be born into Christ. Would you come be born in me? And the Bible says is that as he is born in us, he makes us into new creations. Jesus Christ becomes our head and we're united with him for all of eternity and his victory now becomes ours. So I simply want you to just peer into the manger. Instead of seeing simply a sentimental moment and a baby that is born. I want you to see that in that crib is a everlasting father who's communicating to you that you're significant to the magnificent God.